Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Exodus. We're going to resume where we left off in Exodus chapter 6, starting at verse 28. You can turn there, and as you do, let me tell you that one of the things that my three-year-old granddaughter and I love to do is to make up stories and then take turns telling each other our stories. And every single one of our stories starts exactly the same way, with four famous words that you've heard often repeated in storytelling, once upon a time. After that, there's no telling where the story is going to go. It's simply left to our imaginations. And I can tell you, her imagination is significant. <laughs> Challenging at times. Uh, a recent story, let me, let me give you an example. Zoe, my, my granddaughter, uh, her recent story to me was, once upon a time, there was thunder outside. And my mom was scared. And Riley, that's their dog, ran outside. And my dad came home. And my dad said, thunder? Be quiet and go to bed. And then we had popsicles. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Children love stories. Adults love stories. And stories can come and go. I don't think that story will become a classic, one that's repeated over and over throughout history. How a story becomes a classic or a great tale, I would submit to you, is because of a common theme. A lot of classic stories and tales that we repeat have this common theme of good triumphing over evil. So, and I had to throw this in for a few of you in the audience, whether it's Frodo and the Fellowship in their epic battle with evil Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter and his friends in their fight with Voldemort, or the story that took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when the Republic rose up against the evil empire in Star Wars. We love stories, and we particularly love stories where there is a battle between good and evil. This theme of good triumphing over evil is profoundly Christian. It's the theme that runs through the Bible that culminates with Jesus in his victory, in his triumph over evil, darkness, and death. And so now here in the book of Exodus, we are reminded that God is faithful to deliver his people. The imagery and the storyline of Exodus points directly to Jesus and his fulfillment of that promise. And so as we move now into the latter part of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 in Exodus, we will see the start of an epic battle, a conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, but more broadly, a war between good and evil, between the Lord, the true God, and the false gods of Egypt. And as you'll see from the title of my sermon, let the battle begin. If you look at the, uh, in your bulletin, you'll see 
the outline for this sermon. We'll have one, a question of authority, first blank, a question of authority, and secondly, a demonstration of power. So the battle begins. We have a question of authority and a demonstration of power. Let's look at the Word of God, beginning in Exodus 6, verse 28, through 7, verse 13. This is the Word of the Lord. On the day when Moses, I'm sorry, on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. Land, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, you shall Say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray this morning as we dig into this text that your truth would become evident to us, that we would learn from your word, that we would be encouraged by your word, that we would be challenged by your word, and that we would leave here knowing you better and desiring to serve you in the way that you command us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have here in Exodus, this first section that we read in Exodus 6, verses 28 through 7, Chapter 7, verse 7, a recap. It, this is summational material reminding us of the key events and key characters 
involved in this story. There is now, however, a focus on the confrontation with Pharaoh. You see, the, the battle's about to begin, so it's an appro it's appropriate time to remind us of who are the characters here, what's happening, what's about to take place as this conflict begins to unfold. And so in preparation for the battle to come, we see in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 6 a reminder of all that was required of Moses. He was to function as God's emissary. He was not required to be a gifted persuader. He didn't have to be a trained negotiator. He wasn't asked to put together a sophisticated strategy or to develop a battle plan. Instead, verse 29 tells us exactly what was required. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Pretty straightforward. Pretty simple. Repeat after me. Say what I tell you to say. This is the requirement for Moses. But again, in verse 30, the theme that we've seen repeated earlier, or, or said earlier and now repeated, Moses protests. He says in verse 30, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Well, this is a direct link to verse 12 of this same chapter, where we left off last week when, with Rob preaching. We, we left that narrative where there was this interjection of a gene, genealogy, but now we return right back to the same spot where Moses is saying, what? I, I can't do it. I'm, I'm not able to do it. And, and this is not a new protest. This is not a second protest by Moses. It's simply a repeat of what Moses has said. It's, it's kind of like when you turn on one of your uh, favorite uh, series on TV. Sometimes the episode starts by last week on or last time on, and they give you a quick synopsis of what happened last time in the episode to prepare you with all the information for what's about to happen with this episode, this week's story. And so that's what we have happening here, and that review continues as we begin chapter 7, essentially repeating the same and main concepts of this story. There, there is one difference in this recap. In Exodus 4, Moses is instructed to speak through Aaron to his people, to the Israelites. Here we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel out of his land. So the emphasis here shifts a little bit to the interaction and to what will become the conflict with Pharaoh. Now, what does it mean when it says here, I will make you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother shall be your prophet? Well, this is really important language because this establishes Moses' authority. Moses is authorized to represent God to speak on his behalf, to act on his behalf. Moses is under 
divine direction. Moses was not God by nature, but he was made like God by God Almighty. And here we're going to dig a little bit into the Hebrew, and I'm going to warn you now that there are several words in this text this morning where the Hebrew word and what's translated into one single English word doesn't quite do justice to help us understand the meaning of the word, the true meaning of the word. And this is one of those cases. In the Hebrew, it says, I will make you like Elohim to Pharaoh. Our Bibles typically translate that Hebrew word Elohim to God. But Elohim literally means supreme one or mighty one. And of course, that is true of our God. He is the supreme one. He is the mighty one. So what God is saying to Moses is, I will make you like God. I will make you like supreme one, mighty one, to Pharaoh, who, by the way, saw himself as the supreme and mighty one. So you can see where this conflict is already beginning to build. We also see Aaron designated as a prophet, which underlines his role as Moses' spokesman. Sometimes we think about prophets in predicting the future, and certainly there are places, many places, where we see prophets telling of what will come. But the primary role, the primary function of a prophet is to communicate God's message to others. And that's exactly what Aaron was told to do. We see Moses and Aaron are told, speak all that I command you and tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel out of his land. But then, chapter 7, verse 3, we see again a theme repeated. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, says the Lord. Now, Rob addressed this a couple of weeks ago when we saw this language in chapter 4. And this motif of Pharaoh's hardened heart will be repeated again in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, and in chapter 11. Unfortunately, the, the word heavy or hard-hearted for us automatically connotes a negative connotation, has a negative connotation. But to the Hebrews, the words used here can mean your heart is strong, your heart is resolute. Those are generally positive qualities. But it could also mean stubborn. And what I would say to you is, I think it's all three of these. You see, Pharaoh had a strong, resolute, stubborn heart that was opposed to Moses, Israel, and to the Lord. This was his hard heart. And Pharaoh's stubbornly hard heart will lead, as we see here in the text, to God multiplying his signs and wonders, a forecast of what is about to come, of the plagues that will continually humiliate Egypt and specifically the Egyptian gods and increasingly demonstrate the power of the Lord God. The text says the Lord will unleash great acts of judgment. Why? To accomplish his purpose. 
You see, the Lord is sovereign in his acts to accomplish his purpose. So that we see in verse 5, the Egyptians, there's the purpose, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and deliver the people. Bring out the people of Israel from among them. Last week we saw that Pharaoh did not wanted to deny any knowledge of the Lord. In Exodus 5.2, but Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't even know the Lord. And this is the crux of the first point, a question of authority. Pharaoh basically says, who do you think you are? I don't know the Lord, and I don't have any regard for his authority. Why would I ever think about letting the people go? You see, God's intending that these supernatural events that will come, the plagues, will establish his authority. And they will cause the Israelites, or sorry, they will cause the Egyptians to know who he is. They also, by the way, will help the Israelites to better know who God is. And ultimately, we know that everyone will know who the Lord is. However, only those who have an intimate relationship with him, only those who truly know him as Lord and Savior, will be delivered to salvation. Lastly, in the summary, we, we see that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. At the ages of 80 and 83, the Lord calls them to new and challenging service to him. Service they'd continue for another 40 years, by the way. And this is, I think, a good point to tell each of us or remind each of us that the Lord, no matter where we are in life, no matter what our circumstances are, where we stand, the Lord can call us at any time to new, different, and challenging service. And we, like Aaron and Moses, should be receptive to do as they did, where it says they did just as the Lord commanded now we arrive in verses 8 through 13. And this is, this is a famous story. You've, you've read it. You've seen it in the movies. Let's read it again, beginning in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As we look at this story, I want to use the lens of our sermon outline to dig into it. The, the battle has begun. 
And we will see here in this story a question of authority. And we will see a demonstration of power. So right from the beginning, Pharaoh, we see, will say, prove yourselves by doing a miracle. Pharaoh continues with his indignation towards Moses and Aaron, and more significantly, the one who sent them, the Lord God. And he's essentially saying to them, do you know who I am? Do you realize who you're talking to? By what authority do you even come and speak to me, let alone have any demands of me? You see, Pharaoh in ancient Egypt was the political and religious leader of the people. He held the titles Lord of the Lands and High Priest of every temple. And there were many temples and many gods. He was viewed as the supreme ruler of the people. Pharaoh actually was considered to be a god among, amongst the people. He was also the intermediary between the gods and the peoples. Further, he was believed to be a, the son of a god. He was the ultimate authority in Egypt. And so when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I don't even know who, who this God is. Why would I listen to him? Now in this second interaction, Pharaoh says, all right, I'm going to challenge the authority. Show me a sign. Give me proof that you have any reason, any authority to speak to me or make any demands of me. And so what happens? In response, the Lord instructs Aaron to cast down his staff before Pharaoh, and it becomes a serpent. You want a sign? You want proof of my authority? You want proof of our God-given authority? Here it is. This staff becomes a serpent. Now, I want to dig and tug a little bit on this thread of the staff or rod of God. Uh, in preparing for the sermon, I, I dug into this, um, and I was joking with some of the guys. I had 38 pages of notes on just this idea of the rod of God, the staff of God. We find this concept throughout the Old and New Testament, so there's a lot of significance and symbolism here. The good news is we're not going to uh, get into all 38 pages of that this morning, but let me give you just a little bit of context here. The Bible, in the Bible, rods and staffs were, played a significant role, particularly amongst shepherds. We'll see a, a shepherd's staff, a thin stick with a hook that is used to direct and guide the sheep. The hook is used sometimes to rescue a sheep from a pit or for some danger, or, or particularly young sheep to bring them back to their mothers. The rod also used by shepherds, connotes uh, authority, power, and discipline. It's a, more of a club-like device. It's shorter than the staff and can be used both as an offensive and defensive weapon. Maybe most famously, the rod and the staff come together in a verse that you all know from Psalm 23, verse 4, which says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And there are two Hebrew words, one for rod and one for staff, used in that passage. The, the word for staff is almost always interpreted staff. The word for rod 
can also mean club or scepter or branch or shoot. And sometimes, by the way, it's also used for staff. So it can be confusing. To make it more interesting, the word used here in Exodus 7 is neither of those words. A completely different word. And here we're going to get a little nerdy in our Hebrew. The word is mata, M-A-T-T-A-H, mata. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. And it can mean staff, rod, branch, or interestingly, tribe. So there's this connection of rod, staff, branch, and tribe. And we've just come out of this genealogy, which seems weird. Why, why was that inserted here? But the tribe connection for Moses and Aaron was important. It identified them as being of the tribe of Levi and having a role as priest amongst the people. And, and so if we dig a little deeper, we see in Exodus 4.2, when God first comes to Moses at the burning bush, God says to Moses, what's in your hand? What's in your hand, Moses? He says, a mata. Well, Moses was a shepherd. He was a shepherd at the time. He could have had a staff. That's what your ESV says. He could have had a rod. That's what the King James Version says. Likely, he had both because they were both tools of a shepherd. So we don't know specifically, is it this staff or rod? But we know it's a mata. That word is again used when the Lord instructs Moses to take his mata and use it for signs and wonders. And then in verse 20 of chapter 4, it's gone from what's in your hand, Moses, and here's this rod or staff to use for wonders. In verse 20 we see, Moses took the mata of God. It's been elevated to the rod or the staff of God. It's a clear indication of the authority that God is going to grant Moses. Now, if you watch the coronation of uh, King Charles, well, maybe for this audience, if you remember coronation day for Queen Elsa in Frozen. Okay, good. The, the royal king or queen is handed a scepter, and they hold or wield the scepter as an indication of their royal authority. And that scepter is a version of the shepherd's staff or rod. It symbolizes authority to lead and protect and discipline and judge the flock. Now, Egyptian pharaohs also had a scepter called a heka. And you've seen maybe some of the images of, of Pharaoh with their arms crossed holding a heka or a crook and a flail. That crook looked a lot like a shepherd's staff, shorter, but with a crook on the end. And it, by the way, was used to designate the authority of Pharaoh and as a symbol of his ability to perform magic. Isn't that interesting? So now we have 
coming together, Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, each with their staffs, their mata and their heka. And we will have a conflict of authority. And we'll see what happens. But, but let me go even a little further in Aaron's rod or staff. And I'll, I'll spoil the story here a little bit to let you know, eventually, the Israelites do go. And they move into the wilderness with Moses and Aaron as their leaders. And in Numbers 16, we see a conflict of authority. A few of the Levites become disgruntled with the authority of Moses and Aaron. A guy by the name of Korah and a couple of his fellow Levites incite a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And in, in Numbers, Korah says to Moses, you have gone too far. The whole community of Israel has been set apart by the Lord, and he is with us all. What authority do you have to act as though you are greater than the rest of the Lord's people? Well, Moses responds, well, I'll tell you. If, if I'm wrong, you will die a natural death. But if I'm right, you will die an unusual death. And no sooner had Moses finished speaking than the earth opened up, swallowed Korah and his friends and their families and all of their possessions. Authority question answered? No, no. This, this is unbelievable. In Numbers 16.41, the story continues. The very next morning the whole community of Israel began muttering against Moses and Aaron, saying, you've killed the Lord's people. What? Talk about hard-hearted. The Lord desired to wipe them all out. And only because of Moses and Aaron's intercession did the plague that the Lord sent stop and only killed 14,700 people. Big rebellion. Then the Lord says, all right, I'm going to put an end to this. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to have every tribe leader, every mata leader, bring their mata and inscribe their name on it. Bring your staff or rod. We're going to put them in the tabernacle, into the meeting place. And the one I've chosen as my authority, will their staff will blo blossom, will bloom. Aaron, as the leader of the Levites, puts his in. The next morning, as the Lord had instructed, they come and look at the rods. Aaron's staff had sprouted, budded, blossomed, and produced ripe almonds. And the Lord instructed Moses to take that rod or staff of Aaron and to put it into the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's granted authority and as a warning against this type of rebellion. And you see, Aaron's rod, don't get me wrong here, Aaron's rod is a simple piece of wood. There's nothing magical, there's nothing innately special about it, but it was and is a symbol of authority. God set it apart as the authority granted to Moses and Aaron. And we will see, as we dig into the plagues, this rod, this staff, used to wield power, and specifically plagues 
designed to humiliate the Egyptian gods. Whether it was the staff that touched the water that turns to blood, or that was waved over the water where the frogs inundated, or started with the flies, the locusts, or I'm sorry, the, um, uh, the gnats and the lice. These were all signs of power. In the New Testament, the rod is used as a symbol of authority. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as holding a rod and ruling over the nations. Revelation 19.15 says, He will rule them with an iron rod or an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This imagery emphasizes the power and authority of Jesus as the ultimate shepherd and guide for his people. And there's so many other examples. Did you know that David, when he went to fight Goliath, of course, he took his sling and his rocks. When he chose the rocks, he carried his staff as he went to battle with Goliath as a representation of his authority. Let's, let's turn, however, back to uh, this text and look at verse 10. Here we see the demonstration of power. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. See, this action both legitimizes the authority of Moses and Aaron and is a demonstration of power. Moses and Aaron were not magicians. What they did, or what God did through them, was genuine. He turned a stick into a living animal. Verse 11, however, says, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. The Egyptians, on the other hand, as we can see, they were magicians. And the simplest reading of this text, you would assume that they imitated Aaron's act by some type of magical deception, by some sort of trickery. And for a Pharaoh who was not eager to recognize the Lord, whose stubborn uh, heart, resolute and strong heart, was not to be persuaded to believe in the Lord, this was enough for him to continue in his disregard for the Lord. The, the text states that the magicians accomplished their imitation by their secret acts. And so whether this is simple magic and tricks or has some sort of supernatural element uh, from demons, uh, it, it's unclear. E either way, at least it's unclear to me, but either way, we see that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This was an act they could not duplicate. Clearly, the power of the God of Moses and Aaron was greater than their ability. And so we have this pre-plague, miraculous act, which is intentionally simple and kind of small scale compared to what we're about to see, to test Pharaoh. And while the Egyptian magicians may have been impressed with the fact that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, 
It wasn't enough for the stubborn-minded Pharaoh and his disregard for God remained intact. Now there's a, another interesting note here to uh, look at in the translation of this word for serpent. It says that Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. They cast down their staff and it became a serpent. The wise men, they cast theirs down. They became serpents. This is one of the places where, again, we have different Hebrew words. If you think uh, about famous serpent stories, the, maybe the first one that comes to mind is Genesis 3, where the serpent is introduced in the Garden of Eden. And that Hebrew word is nahas, N-A-H-A-S, nahas. And every single time in the Old Testament, it's translated serpent or snake. Guess what? That is not the word used here in Exodus 7. Here, the word is tannin, T-A-N-N-I-N, tannin. This word is used 27 times in the Old Testament. And most often, 70% of the time, translated, blow your mind a little bit, dragon. Dragon. Now, is it possible that we're our childhood story of the snake was a, a dragon? It's possible. This, this word is the word used in Genesis 1 for sea monster. It's the word used in Job for behemoth or leviathan. So it's clearly not a normal, ordinary snake. Now, could it have been a, a great big cobra? There's, there's some interesting uh, connections here. Rob talked about Pharaoh's crown had a rearing uh, a cobra. The Pharaohs believed that the cobra was the protector of, the co of, the, of Pharaoh and that it would spit venom and kill anyone that threatened or proposed to threaten Pharaoh. So, so maybe there, that's the connection. I, I'm not sure it matters except to say this was not some type of ordinary animal. And more importantly, and the reason I bring this up is, this word tannin is connected with symbolism associated with war, destruction, and chaos. And that's, that's why we often see it as a dragon, because dragons are associated and symbolize war, destruction, and chaos. And so Aaron, when he's casting his staff, he's predicting and he's showing there will be war and destruction and chaos. And the magicians say, oh, you're bringing, you're bringing us this threat of war, destruction, and chaos? We've got ours. Here it is. And then what happens? It's swallowed up. The Lord swallows up the threat of war, destruction, and chaos from the Egyptians, and he says, I have the authority and I have the power to change the outcome. And we will see in the coming chapters a war, destruct, total destruction and chaos raining down on Egypt to make sure that the people knew this is the Lord. And it's by his hand that I will let and deliver, let my people go and to deliver them. You see, the, 
the liberation of the people of Israel from their servitude to the Egyptians is not just a battle of wills. At the root is a conflict between the Lord God Almighty and the false gods of Egypt. The two central characters, Moses and Pharaoh, they become representatives of the power behind them. And so with Egypt, the superpower of its time, Pharaoh was all-powerful, and yet he will become a tragic character. He will not listen to Moses and Aaron, at least initially. And this conflict between competing sources of power will be seen not only by the individuals, but by all of Egypt and all of Israel. And in the end, even the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, as the coming disasters will testify to the authority and the power over the Lord and, his, and the, the inability of Pharaoh and those loyal to him to respond in any way. Now, in closing, let me bring some application to this great story. You know, as we've been looking at Moses going to Pharaoh and being present in front of Pharaoh, we are reminded that the Lord said to Pharaoh, what's in your hand? I would submit to you, the Lord is asking you the same question. What is in your hand? Your abilities, your talents, your material possessions, the knowledge that you have of the truth. Let us remember that all of those things have been sanctified by the rod of God's authority to be used in powerful service to him. And you may feel like Moses, inadequate, not ready for that call. I want to encourage you with the words that the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go therefore, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You see, the Lord chose Moses and Aaron to do his work particularly in time of need for deliverance. We too, as followers of Jesus, have been charged with the responsibility of speaking the words of the Father, of being an ambassador to the King. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Let's do the same. There's no question of authority. The Lord will demonstrate His power through you when you faithfully serve Him in a way that He's called you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this mighty story of Moses and Aaron. We thank You that we can see that You choose people to do Your work, to speak Your words. And so, Father, just as we close this part of the service, I pray that each one of us will have ears to hear your calling, that we would have willing hearts to follow in doing just as you command us to do. May we be your servants here on earth. May we help to build your kingdom through the power of your spirit.
through the authority of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.